Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. Whoa, what was that? A rabbit? Where'd you go, little guy? You don't want to be out here. There are traps all over. Guess he's gone. Good luck to you, little fella. What's this? Is that a doll? No, that's a body. Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we open our investigation into the mystery known as The Boy in the Box. Also called The Case of America's Unknown Child. It happened in Philadelphia in 1957. And it galvanized an entire city. First, there was the gruesome discovery of the naked body of a young boy. And then came the inevitable questions. Who was the victim? And what happened to him? Did he die by a tragic accident? Or was this a cover-up in a horrible child homicide? If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or to hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And now, back to the boy in the box. It's February 1957, and a college student is driving through the Fox Chase section of Philadelphia when he spots a rabbit crossing the road and pulls over. Whoa, was that a rabbit? Why? Well, he knew there was a lot of animal traps in the area, and he wanted to see if the rabbit was okay. (laughs) That seems weird. Mm, It gets weirder. When he walked into the field, he discovered a cardboard box with surprising contents. Is that a body? It was the body of a dead child. So he immediately notifies the police? No. No? He didn't go to the police until the next day. Officer, I need to make a report. Why did he wait? Apparently, he didn't want to have any contact with the police. But there was a dead child. Wait, it gets more bizarre. He was actually not the first to discover the dead boy in the box. A few days previous, a young man was checking his muskrat traps when he found the body. What's this? No way. And he didn't report it? No. He was afraid the police would confiscate his muskrat traps. Really? But there was a dead child. Exactly. The case was already starting off on the wrong foot. But at least the police were finally involved. Yes. They were now investigating a young victim found in a cardboard box in the woods. And they went to work answering the important questions. Who was it and what happened? The Philadelphia Police Department opened their investigation into the boy in the box on February 26, 1957. Okay, let's cordon off this area. We'll bring the body to the coroner's lab for a full autopsy. They thought they would be able to quickly identify the body. We've taken fingerprints off the boy, and we anticipate finding out who he is very shortly. But that proved to be more challenging than anticipated. Where do we stand? No missing child reports match the victim. No one has come forward. We're at a loss. Come on, a child doesn't just pop up dead without someone knowing he's missing. Let's crack this. The case attracted intense media interest throughout Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. And at least in this instance, that proved to be an advantage. I want this on page one. Saturation coverage. The Philadelphia Inquirer even went to press with 400,000 flyers with the boy's likeness on them. 
After we print up these flyers, I want them handed out on every street corner, posted in every shop window, and included with every gas bill. So the word was out to everyone? Pretty much. Look, they're still trying to figure out who that poor boy is. Isn't it terrible? Damn shame. But still, there was no identification. Which only had the police redoubling their efforts. They took 270 police academy cadets and went to the crime scene. Okay, everybody, listen up. We're doing a grid pattern search. If you see anything, just blow your whistle and I will come and check. They crossed and recrossed the area. They found a child's blue corduroy cap, a child's scarf and handkerchief. But those items of clothing led nowhere. Frustration was setting in. It doesn't make sense. We've compared the fingerprints and the footprints to the hospital records, and nothing. So the police decided to put clothes on the body and prop it up in a sitting position, then took photos. Maybe this will jog someone's memory, if he looks like he did in normal life. Sadly, even that desperate attempt was unsuccessful. We just got to keep knocking on doors. Someone knows something. Days became weeks, and then months, and the police still couldn't answer the fundamental question. Who was this boy? But that also raised another mystery that was just as vexing. Why hadn't anyone reported him missing? As time passed, the investigators were still unable to put a name to the victim, now known simply as the boy in the box. They didn't have a name, but they certainly knew a lot about him. Well, the boy had blue eyes, fair complexion, and his arms were folded neatly across his stomach. Which indicates he was placed there by somebody who cared for him. The child was 40 and a half inches tall, just under three and a half feet, and weighed 30 pounds. Only 30 pounds? Right. He appeared to be malnourished. There were also bruises on the body, particularly around the face and head. So, child abuse. Police weren't ready to jump to that conclusion yet. X-rays showed he had no broken bones or previous fractures, and his fingernails and toenails were cut short and neat. But the bruises? They all appeared to be inflicted at the same time. So maybe one incident where a parent or guardian lost control? Definitely a possibility. There was also the fact that the hair, medium to light brown, had been recently cut short. A haircut? There were actually small clumps of hair on the body, which suggested the hair had been cut recently, either just before or right after his death. Why would someone cut his hair after his death? It's possible that it was done to conceal the identity of the deceased, and this would explain why the haircut seemed to be rather crude. Because it might have been done in a hurry. The boy was estimated to be four to six years old. And how did they arrive at that? Well, it was just an estimate, but the child still had a full set of baby teeth. So that was the right age range. There were also several distinguishing characteristics on the boy, moles and scars. There were three small moles on the left side of the face, one under the right ear, three on the chest, and one large one on the right arm, and there were seven scars. Seven? Seven, three of which had been surgical scars. Well, that certainly seems unusual. No question. Two of the possible surgical scars were on the chest and groin, and they had healed so well they only left a hairline trace. And the third? It was on the ankle, and looked like the kind of cut-down incision that is made when you want to expose a vein for an infusion or transfusion. Had this boy undergone surgery? And if so, shouldn't there be a doctor who then recognized him? More great questions. And unfortunately, again, the police didn't have the answers. And then there was another discovery of a similar nature. That the boy had been to a doctor. Right. 
When they shined an ultraviolet light on the boy's left eye, it fluoresced a bright blue, suggesting that a special diagnostic dye had been applied, possibly to treat a chronic eye ailment. Well, that seems very specific. Yeah. And yet, still, no one came forward to identify the boy. Did they think someone was doing rogue medical procedures on a child? Well, it couldn't be ruled out. But a stronger possibility was that the boy was from somewhere else. And so the surgeon or treating physician wasn't even aware that people were trying to identify him. But wasn't it all over the news? Yes, in Philadelphia. But the country wasn't as linked up as it is today, which meant it wasn't national news. And police departments didn't share information across jurisdictions like they do today. It would have been different if it happened now. Right. Most experts agree that if this happened in the last 25 years, then it would have become national news, and thanks to police cooperation and public involvement, the boy would have been quickly identified. What about the other scars on the boy? Were they suspicious? That's difficult to say. There were scars on the elbow, chin, and side of the chest, but kids playing sometimes get injured and heal. They could also be from abuse. Mm, true. Additionally, the palm of his right hand and the soles of both feet were wrinkled in what the police referred to as the washerwoman effect. Washerwoman effect. Well, you know how your hands get wrinkly when you're cleaning a lot of dishes? Oh, I get it. Washerwoman. Right. Or when you stay in the pool or bathtub too long. Officials believe that the victim's feet and hand had been submerged for an extended period of time, right before or after his death. That seems weird. Was there any water in his lungs? No and he didn't drown. The cause of death was blunt force trauma. Any other physical evidence on the boy? His stomach was empty, so he hadn't eaten in the two to three hours before he died. But there was a brown fluid in his esophagus, which indicated he might have vomited shortly before his death. And they were able to establish a time of death? No. No one knew how long the boy had been in the woods. He could have been there for two to three days, or he could have been there two to three weeks. Because it was cold enough to preserve the body. That's right. February in Pennsylvania. I keep coming back to the same question. All these distinguishing characteristics and still no identity. One theory, the boy was being raised off the grid. Nobody knew about him. Except for the person who was raising him and presumably killed him. But could a child be completely hidden from the rest of the world for four to six years? I know. It's hard to buy and even more tragic, if it were true. Well, there was also a theory bandied about that the reason no one recognized the boy was because he wasn't raised as a boy. What does that mean? Well, what if the child had been raised as a girl? Now that's just bizarre. And what evidence points to that? Well, admittedly, not much, but they were looking for an explanation why no one would recognize the boy, and they focused on the haircut. What about the haircut? Well, what if the child was being raised as a girl with long, fair hair, and then, after being killed, the perpetrator cut it all off so no one would recognize her slash him? Well, that certainly seems like a stretch. Just on the basis of the cut hair? Well, they also thought the eyebrows on the boy looked stylized. I am not buying it. It seems like pure conjecture born out of desperation. I agree. But there is another theory that seems more plausible, that the boy was a foreigner. Now that makes a lot of sense. Well, suppose he was from another country and had recently moved to the Philadelphia area. That would explain why there were no birth records at a local hospital and the surgical scars came from an operation overseas. In fact, years later, one determined investigator, Bill Kelly, was searching through old newspapers. 
when he came upon a story about Hungarian refugees arriving in the U.S. after the failed uprising in October of 1956. That's him. That's him. In the photograph with the story was a little boy who looked exactly like the boy in the box. The coloring, the facial expression, the build, it's him. Energized by that discovery, he contacted the Immigration and Naturalization Service. I need to look at the passport photos of people entering the country from Hungary in 1956. That's right, all of them. He ended up looking through over 11,000 photos. 11,200 to be exact. Oh, but who's counting? Let me guess, he struck out. No. No? That's him. I found him. He found him. He now had a name and tracked the family down to where they had settled in North Carolina. Well, for the next step, he would have to proceed with caution. Because he might be dealing with a family that had covered up the death of their son. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? Do you picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's continue the story. When we left off, Identification Unit Supervisor Bill Kelly had finally found the address of the Hungarian immigrants believed to be the parents of the boy in the box. State troopers drove out to the farm. And there, playing in the field, was the boy. Nice car. Thanks. Son, are your parents home? They're inside. So once again, the search had come up empty. But it showed the determination of the investigators. No matter how long it took, they wouldn't stop looking. The police were focusing a lot of attention and resources on finding out who was the boy in the box. But what about the other key piece of evidence? Uh, what other key piece of evidence? The box. Oh, right. The box. It was a cardboard box marked fragile, measuring 15 inches by 19 inches by 35 inches. It came from J.C. Penney and originally held a baby's bassinet. Were the police able to trace the box? Yes, to a J.C. Penney store in Upper Darby, which borders West Philadelphia. We're going to need to see your records on baby bassinets. They were able to determine it was one of 12 received in November of 1956, and all but one were sold between December of 56 and February of 57. And they pulled the records on who bought them. Unfortunately, the store worked in cash only, so they didn't have sales records. However, the police were determined. This isn't going to stop us. Let's track it down. And sure enough, they were able to locate nine of the 11 sold bassinets. But not all of them. Two were still unaccounted for. It was just too difficult to task. Just our luck. But the police did look long and hard at the box. 
You notice that white coloring inside? Yeah, I see it. I bet they painted this bassinet white. So all we need to do is find a white bassinet and we're all set. The police also sent the box along to the FBI. We'll have the boys in the lab look at it, see if they can find any prints. Regrettably, that also came up empty. That seems to be the theme of this case. Which brings up one more piece of evidence from the scene, a faded cheap flannel blanket. That's what the boy was wrapped in when he was found. However, the blanket was mass-produced and shipped to multiple locations. Which made it difficult, if not impossible, to track. As near as could be determined, the blanket was manufactured in either North Carolina or Quebec, Canada. So not only two different places, but two different countries. This could have been bought anywhere. By pretty much anyone. (sighs) It was another dead end. And a case full of them. One could certainly understand if the authorities, despite their hard work, would be getting discouraged. With the investigation of the boy in the box at a standstill, it was time to question assumptions and try to find a new avenue to explore. Such as? Well, first, it was assumed that the boy was put in the box in the place where he was killed. Right. And then taken to the field. But what if the box was already there? At the scene? A confidential witness came forward with a story. I don't know who the boy is or where he came from. Just tell us what you know. The box was already there. Come again? It was there by the side of the road. I saw it before. And it was empty? Yes. No boy, nothing inside. It was just a box. An interesting observation. But it doesn't get us any closer to an identification. But if true, it means there is no connection between the box and where the boy came from. Which would essentially make the whole box investigation moot. The police also re-questioned Frederick Bonassis. Who's Frederick Bonassis? Well, he was the college student who originally reported the boy in the box to the police. I knew that rabbit story didn't make sense. Turns out the section of Susquehanna Road where he found the box adjoined a school for wayward girls. Come on, Frederick. What were you really doing out there? Being a little creep, that's what. Well, that's right. He was in the woods spying on girls from the Good Shepherd School. Okay, I admit that sometimes I've gone down there to look around but I didn't do nothing wrong. So what was that rabbit nonsense? I didn't want to... I mean, I thought you might get the wrong idea. No, you knew we'd get the right idea. But I came to you the next day, and everything was exactly how I told you. Naturally, the police were skeptical. Who wouldn't be? So they took a long, hard look at Frederick. But he volunteered to take a lie detector test. Do you know the identity of the boy in the box? No. Did you have anything to do with his death? No. And he passed the lie detector test. So he was just a weasel. But he was not responsible for the crime. And the police were no closer to identifying the boy or catching the killer. There were lots of determined investigators working on the boy in the box case. Elmer Palmer, the first policeman on the scene. Various homicide detectives in the Philadelphia PD. Bill Kelly, supervisor of the Philadelphia Police Department Identification Unit. But perhaps above all was a dedicated investigator with the medical examiner's office named Remington Bristow. Remington Bristow spent 36 years on the case, often traveling to distant parts of the country chasing down leads, mostly on his own time and at his own expense. And what was his theory on the crime? Well, he was convinced that the murder had something to do with a foster home near the crime scene. If you walk through the woods, this foster home is located only a mile and a half away. How are you doing? Fine. I'm with the medical examiner's office. I'm investigating the boy in the box. I don't have anything to say. 
The man raising the foster children refused to take a lie detector test. Which seems suspicious. However, there were eight children living there at the time, and all of them were accounted for. And none of them said anything about missing a foster brother? No. Bristow thought the boy might have been the son of the foster father's stepdaughter. He speculated they covered up the child because she was an unwed mother. How do you hide a child with eight other kids around? Good question. And later they did a DNA test, and it proved that the stepdaughter wasn't the mother of the boy in the box. So there goes that theory. Remington Bristow wasn't so sure. Years later, during an estate sale at the foster home, he found a JCPenney bassinet. Like what was in the box. And he got more confirmation in his own mind after visiting a psychic. A psychic? Really? Yes. In an effort to break the case, he engaged an elderly New Jersey psychic named Florence Sternfeld. I see a log cabin near a body of water. Yeah? And there's a porch. Bristow found there was a log cabin near the foster home and a pond. Well, which is great. Why didn't she just describe the foster home? Well, other investigators were skeptical, too. But Bristow was convinced. Frankly, it sounds a little desperate. Yeah, maybe. A bassinet and a pond are hardly convincing evidence. But he had dedicated his whole life to this pursuit. Exactly. And maybe rather than coming up empty again, he wanted to believe. Well, maybe he needed to believe. Remington Bristow died in 1993. By then, the boy in the box had been gone for over three and a half decades. Generations had passed. And the city of Philadelphia had changed enormously. The world of the 90s was so far and distant from the late 1950s. So as the 40th anniversary of the boy's death came and went, it was time to ask a very pertinent question. Would the boy in the box be forgotten? There is an international organization of crime-solving experts based in Philadelphia known as the Vidoc Society. The Vidoc Society? Well, they take their name from Eugène-Francois Vidoc, a French criminal turned detective who is considered the father of modern criminology. This was back in the 1800s? Correct. He was also the inspiration for characters in the works of Victor Hugo, Edgar Allan Poe, and Honoré de Balzac. Not a bad group of writers. <laughs> the VDOC Society is a private nonprofit group whose members possess investigative expertise ranging from forensics to law. They get together regularly to review cold cases. And they got involved in the Boy in the Box case. Mm -hmm. In early 1998, the VDOC Society was instrumental in helping obtain a court order granting permission to exhume the boy's body for the purpose of extracting tissue for DNA testing. In 1957, the boy in the box had been buried in a potter's field. His tombstone read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. But now it was time to see if the boy's body held any more secrets. The body was exhumed, and mitochondrial DNA was extracted from the enamel of a tooth. Mitochondrial DNA? Well, matches with mitochondrial DNA are not as conclusive as with nuclear DNA, but they can still determine lineage. And that's how investigators could rule out the stepdaughter in the foster home as the boy's mother. Mm-hmm. And on November 11th, 1998, the boy was reburied at Ivy Hill Cemetery. The large plot had been donated by the cemetery. The coffin, headstone, and funeral service were donated by the son of the man who had buried the boy back in 1957. A significant number of Philadelphians attended the service, and the media was there as well. The boy was identified on the headstone as America's unknown child. And to this day, city residents visit the grave and keep it decorated with flowers, stuffed animals, and little toys. A website called America's Unknown Child 
was launched to keep the boy's memory alive and to help generate new leads. The message regarding the boy in the box was clear. Well, he may be unknown, but he would not be unloved. The publicity surrounding the reburial of the boy in the box sparked new interest in the case. And the investigation would continue. Then, in 2000, 43 years after the original discovery, a tantalizing lead. A patient in Ohio called her psychiatrist at 2 in the morning. You need to contact Philadelphia Homicide. I have information on a murder. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. After an alarming phone call, the Ohio psychiatrist was shaken, but they knew what they had to do. The psychiatrist called the Philly PD and thus began a two-year process of slowly getting the woman to tell her story. Who was this woman? Well, because she was granted confidentiality, she is referred to as Mary or Martha or sometimes just M. And what was her information on the murder? She claimed to have grown up in Lower Marion, the only child of school teachers. In 1954, when she was 10 years old, her mother drove to a strange neighborhood. Her mother went to the door, and there was a woman holding a baby in a diaper. M's mother handed over an envelope, and the woman handed over the baby. She bought the baby? M wasn't sure what was in the envelope, but she heard a man inside the house ask, Did you get the money? And what happened to the baby? M said they took the baby home, where he was kept in the basement and never uttered a sound. Over the next two and a half years, the poor boy was horribly abused, until one night he threw up his baked beans. M's mother tossed him into the bathtub and beat him. The boy let out a shriek. M said it was the only sound she ever heard from him, and then he was silent again. And then what happened? M's mother cleaned up the child, cut his hair, wrapped him in a blanket, and put him in the trunk of their car. M joined her in a raincoat because it had started drizzling. Then they drove. Let me guess. They ended up in Fox Chase. By the side of the road, a man drove up and stopped. A good Samaritan. Do you need any help? No, we're all right. Thanks anyway. You sure? We're fine. Okay. M's mother left the baby in a box she found by the side of the road. Wow. That is quite a story. But was it true? It fit perfectly into the facts of the case. The baked beans and the vomiting explained. The wrinkling from being in the tub, the bruises, the malnourishment, the box by the road. But was it too perfect? The police had to try and corroborate every detail of what M said to see if they could prove or disprove what she claimed. That's their job. They're supposed to be skeptical. They went to the house where she grew up to see if the basement she described matched. They retraced the drive from the house to Fox Chase. But just when hopes were at their highest... They talked to M's old neighbors. There were never any other children in that house. No, no chance. We would have seen it. And then there was the credibility of their witness. It seems pretty obvious to us. She has a history of mental illness. So, once again, a possible solution to the crime had slipped through the investigators' fingers. But they did have the memory of one bittersweet moment when they were gathering information. What was his name? Excuse me? What was the boy's name? The boy your brother brought home. He was called Jonathan. Jonathan? That's all I know. 
This past February, it will have been 60 years since the boy in the box was first discovered. And sadly, the mystery remains. With each passing year, the probability that the case will be solved decreases. But is there still a chance it will be? Well, certainly it's possible, but it seems unlikely to me. First of all, so many people who might have had information about 1957 are gone. True. And given all the publicity surrounding the case, if someone was going to come forward, wouldn't they have done that already? Mm, probably, but, well, there's always a chance. This case was even the subject of two episodes of America's Most Wanted, which led to a lot of tips. And all of those tips led nowhere. Well, contrary to popular belief, not every case on America's Most Wanted got solved. I'm just saying, if there was going to be a break in the case, it would have happened by now. Well, let me just take a moment to play the devil's advocate. In general, how many true mysteries are left in this world? Well, nobody knows what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Right? Oh, wait. Isn't he buried under the Meadowlands? Mm. Well, my point is, there's still people out investigating, and isn't there a chance they might be successful? It seems remote. Cold cases get solved all the time, especially with new technology. And what might finally break this case is DNA. We have the boy's DNA. From when they exhumed the body in 1998? Mm -hmm. And every day, more DNA is being collected from crimes and criminals across the country. The database is getting bigger and bigger, and who's to say there won't be a match? I hope you're right. Mm. So, I guess that's our Twitter poll. Will they ever identify the boy in the box? Or will he always remain a mystery? Well, let us know what you think. Or if you have a theory that we haven't explored. And on that one in a billion chance that you actually have the important piece of information that could finally finally help solve the case. Don't wait any longer to come forward. Now is the time. Well, after all these years, it would provide no small sense of satisfaction to put a name to America's unknown child. The spot where the boy in the box was found is no longer a field. It is by the side of a driveway on a road lined with brick houses. The fox chase of 1957 doesn't exist anymore. But there is a child frozen in time. He still has a hold on the public imagination. And his story has become the basis of episodes of Cold Case, CSI, and Law and Order SVU. You could look at the investigation of the boy in the box as a tale of frustration and disappointment. And make no mistake, it is that. But... But... But it is also a story of perseverance. Of dedication. Of remembering someone whose society forgot. The boy in the box lets us know through his tragic death to hold life precious. And to respect the humanity which connects us all. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Uh, join the conversation. Visit the Parcast Facebook page, or you can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. As always, we thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, tell your friends. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Ron and Max Cutler. Sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance by Joel Stein and written by Steve DeLillo. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Matt Cannon, Mike Capozzi, Janice Liebhart, Nicholas Massu, Steve Pinto, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>